Welcome to When Everything is Missions. When Everything is Missions is hosted by Matthew Ellison, President of 1615, and Danny Spitters, Vice President of Church Partnerships with Pioneers USA. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Here are your hosts, Matthew Ellison and Denny Spitters. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the When Everything is Missions podcast. I am Matthew Ellison, and as always, I am joined by a dear friend and my co-host, Denny Spitters. Denny, it's good to be with you today. Yeah, it's good to be back together. Welcome, everyone. Yeah, I wish we could do this in studio, Denny. Of course, we're doing this virtually these days, but uh, I'm longing for the day when we can be in studio together. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. I'm thrilled that we can have some guests today. We have Trent Hunter and Mark Vowell with us. Welcome, brothers. We are really excited to have you with us. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your church that you have in common, Heritage Bible Church. Well, I guess I'll go first. Um, My name is Trent Hunter, and I'm the pastor for preaching and teaching here. Our church has been uh, here in the Greenville region uh, since 1975 planted by a group of God-fearing, mission-minded people in the Greenville, South Carolina area. And uh, I've been here at the church for about three years. Mark, your turn. Uh, my name is Mark Bowles, and I've been with Heritage for about, I think, about eight years as a lay member and uh, have served for a time as the leader of the missions group, the missions committee, our co-team, and uh, have also served as a lay elders. For several years. And Mark, I think it'd be helpful to let folks know about your day job, your, your ministry vocation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. So I am the chair of the Division of Ministries at Bob Jones University in their School of Religion. My, my background and main focus is missions, my uh, education, a missiologist, and that really is my, my main sphere. That's where I put most of my focus. Great. I think that's helpful for our listening audience to know that this is what you do. This is your calling. So, brothers, the name of your chapter is a process of change. And we talk about reformation, this whole idea of not redefining missions or rethinking it, but rediscovering it. And Danny and I contend that churches need a reformation. They need to clarify a biblical understanding of missions. And what I love about your chapters is how practical they are. They give readers insights into a real church that went through a real process to clarify a biblical definition and understanding of missions. So something you write, uh, this is from Mark's chapters, heritage had become a place where it would be fair to say that our church held an everything is missions mentality. Every charitable organization of any variety to which the church made donations was listed as a missions partner. We eventually funded pastoral interns at the church from the missions budget. So we're curious, and probably our audiences as well, do you have any idea how everything became missions? Because it doesn't seem like this was always the case. Sure. So part of this uh, goes back to the um, the way the church budgeted for missions. And Trent speaks about that maybe a little clearer than I do in his chapter. So I might let him address that if he chooses. The other part of that is like so many evangelical churches where our background is maybe in a setting where most of the missionaries that we have partnered with would get their primary support from churches rather than individual donors. That's all changing now, but that's kind of the background we've come from. 
So you have missionaries that are out looking for support. Our town is a college town. Several schools would feed into um, the missionary enterprise. And so we have no shortage of candidates coming to our church looking for support. Many of them have been part of our church while they were in college. And so I think this is pretty common for many, many evangelical churches. And that is, you have someone that you resonate with, they sound like they're gonna do a good work, they have real promise, they've got the right education, they've got the right enthusiasm, and we've got the money, so hey, let's decide to partner with people. And so, it, it you know, it's all good, but I don't know that the church ever really had a specific missions goal in mind. It just became, let's fund good people. And ultimately the, the end of that um, becomes um, what, as you would say, uh, Matthew, maybe a shotgun approach, but also it tends to turn the, it tends to turn the leadership back to um, church becomes basically the funder and everything becomes outsourced to good people. So in time, we just kind of kept adding and adding and adding and even local things that seemed good we didn't have a very clear and specific delineation between, say, good works and missions works. And mm. so everything got into the missions category. When I think of this question of how everything became missions at Heritage, um, I mean, two words come to mind, and some of this will overlap with what Mark said, but the words accidentally and creatively. Um, you know, we were a church that accidentally, so we were a church that was generous. We decided we were going to give, when the church was founded, we're going to give half the budget, 50% that's ever given here is going to go to global missions. And so we were generous. We were ready to give and partners because of what Mark gave our context. We just had a lot of people passing through that knew of our church, who knew leaders at our church, leaders who had trained up missionaries who would go out from our church or the region. So we were ready to give and people were ready with pitches, but we were not ready with explicit aims and definitions. And if you take generosity and add opportunity, you get, in our case, and in so many cases, a holy mess of commitments in the absence of clarity. So we lacked clarity to make really strategic decisions. And so we ended up reactive instead of proactive. And if you add decades to that, we've just got a lot of, we're tied to a lot of works in a lot of places. Many people we don't know or know well, whose works we haven't tracked with, maybe we've changed, maybe they've changed. Um, and in any case, at some point, I think I've heard the number as many as 40 individuals, uh, groups or ministries we were tied to. And then I say creatively because, you know, that 50% goal that our church had, which was something we were proud of and excited about, and it comes from the right place, meant that if we weren't at 50%, we needed to get there, which means... When somebody comes through town, if they're, you know, a motorcycle ministry or a puppet ministry somewhere in another state or a camp in another state, uh, it, for us, it's an opportunity to get our percentage higher. I don't think anyone said it that way, but but we we had that aspiration. And so we ended up getting creative in how we would meet our goals since we equated percentage with faithfulness. Uh, and eventually, those those this is how I think everything becomes missions. Eventually, if your team gets around this exciting regional opportunity or this humanitarian type work, even if there's some gospel in it, that now budgetary commitment will start to teach your congregation about what you mean when you say missions. And so 
And so the definition would expand with each commitment that we made until our definition was basically, functionally, anything we gave to that was outside of our walls uh, was understood as missions, as that's what the, the, that was the rubric that was guiding the decisions. That was never started that way, but with accidentally, because of our opportunities and because of some gospel energized creativity, that's where we ended up. Yeah. And, and you want the thermometer to go up, like you say. So you got a goal and everybody yes. thinks, well, we're doing well. We're doing missions. It keeps bubbling up, it, moving toward the top. Mm -hmm. So, um, hey, you know, you guys kind of you came to a place where you recognized a need to hit the pause button and reevaluate your understanding and approach to doing missions. Uh, Mark, your chapter is where do we go from here? And you kind of tell your story a little bit about how that happened at Heritage. Um, what brought you to that place? So what you guys write in your book, Everything in Missions, I actually read your book probably about a year or so before I met Matthew. And I resonate with all of that. I mean, that very much reflects a philosophy that I've held for a long time. That I would, you know, teach and promote, but and and during the time that I was chair of the missions group at at Heritage, I gathered around me guys that were equally committed, but we didn't ever seem to be able to make traction. And I think part of it was uh, our lack of maybe good communication with the rest of the church, and then we find ourselves we find ourselves constantly postponing, like you know, this isn't a good time. Maybe we should wait for this. And then that became the next thing. And that turned into a process of several years. So I found myself sitting sometimes in a room meeting with five or six other people that agreed with everything you would you would say in your book, but not really being able to move it forward. And what really helped, um, we had a wonderful pastor that I still love and admire. He moved on to another ministry. And when Trent came as our pastor, for preaching and teaching, um, he found, you know, he talked to us about where we were with mission support and mission partners. And he said, hey, I know a guy. And uh, that's how he got in touch with Matthew. And the process began. And I would say, in addition to helping us maybe refine and redefine our goals and our perspectives, it, it, in my mind, individually, the most helpful part for me, especially, was finding a way to bridge this uh, gap between what the missions group was saying among ourselves and what we were saying to the whole church. And and I think Matthew was a great coach in leading us through that process and bringing in from day one um, various levels of church leadership and really insisting that they all be at the table. I think that was an incredible step forward. And then just helping us really shape, um, you know, what that would look like going forward. So I, I would say we had the right goals, but we didn't have the right mechanism. And um, 1615 helped a lot with the, with the goals, but helped a great deal even more, I would say, with the mechanism. So that's a perfect lead in for my next question here. Both of you talk about leadership participation in your process of reformation, again, of really rediscovering, clarifying a biblical understanding of missions. So I, I wanna have you address the audience, the listening audience here. Why didn't you just leave this up to the missions team or committee to figure things out? Um, 
Well, Trent was new. I would say that's part of it at the time. And um, for me, um, I, I think I think we knew the right things that we wanted to achieve. And in other words, we had talked for a very long time about drawing down the number of people we support and being much more intentional about as a church how we approach mission engagement. But we we never could seem to get it beyond that small group. And we would make you know forward leaps and then we'd take a few steps back. And and a great deal of it has to do in this case, quite frankly, with the fact that we still have a number of the founding members in the church, especially at that time, and they were all emotionally committed to the partners, mission partners that we were supporting. That's normal, that, that's a good thing, but any suggestion of change was just met with tremendous resistance. So I think um, bringing all the key uh, church leaders to the table I'm saying the various elders and, and, and the pastoral staff and saying, okay, let's talk through this together. And I tried, I don't know, if, Matthew, if you would agree with this, but I tried to be very low key. I didn't want to sit there and say, I've been telling you this, I've been telling you this, because that would have been pretty like, <laughs> sour grapes, right? But it was marvelous. I mean, yeah. I was sitting there in my, in my heart, pumping my fist saying, oh, Matthew, go, oh, Matthew, this is all wonderful stuff. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, one of our convictions is that if you're going to see transformation take place in a church, you got to bring the leaders in. I mean, this is just a biblical model. You look at Acts 13, this audacious church we read about that was really the first church that took the gospel cross-culturally. And lo and behold, the church's leaders were the champions of the vision. So obviously my question had a, a point in mind, but, you know, Trent, you early on came into the process and committed to it throughout. And I will say that's one of the reasons the vision has traction is because the leaders and the elders of the church spoke into the vision. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. We, we, um, you know, from our part, for my part, Matthew, I remember, you know, you and I lived in the same town years ago and I remember watching you work with a church that even I was a part of, and I took you out for Indian food, I think it's probably 2014 and said, Matthew, I don't know where I'm going to be in a decade, but I can't imagine that you won't be a partner that could help somewhere at some time. And, and, um, and yeah, so I just thank the Lord. This is a takeaway from these situations that Jesus is committed to his mission and he is putting people together for that mission at specific times and specific places. And in this case, this partnership was just right for us at the time that it, that it came about. Well, uh, obviously going through uh, a process like that, not only is there significant time involved, but, Talk about maybe some possible pain you experienced as church and missions leaders working through a process of rediscovering a shared biblical understanding of missions. Did you have anything like that happen? Uh, and if so, what was it like? Trent, maybe you could kind of fill it in from a pastor's perspective. Yeah, I can I can start. Mark might have something to add. We were you, There's a reason why we wanted to do this as a leadership team. A number of our elders were involved in, in these, I don't know, half a dozen or more half Saturday sessions and other other steps. We're committed to a division of labor. So all of our elders can't do everything to the same extent, but we're also committed to a unity of purpose and commission. And if there's anything that all of our elders need to own together, it is this global work. And so we were committed to it, but no, it involved pain as you, as you suggest. 
It involved the pain of the time it took. And you're saying goodbye to your family, in this case, on a Saturday morning or for some churches, maybe on an evening for hours at a time. Pain prepping for and debriefing from those meetings. Pain of awkward conversations and a bit of conflict between each other. I mean, there's a reason why you need some outside help. It's because who wants to ask that hard question or suggest that that guy might be upside down? And and so we had to deal with with that and, and finding out. It, it, so there's there's pain in those kinds of conversations. There's pain in telling members who are related to partners, as Mark suggested, and pain in committing to a direction without concrete outcomes in front of us yet. I mean, who wants to, when you lead your congregation somewhere dynamic and expensive, you kind of want to be able to paint a picture that's a little more specific than, frankly, what we had was conceptual. We had a theology, we had direction. Yeah. We didn't have concrete things. And then there's the pain of convincing people who have thought in terms of more is more, more people, mm. more money, more percentage, that less is actually more that as you go deeper with fewer you go farther and you're maybe more fruitful and more faithful for it and so many things are like that your family budgets like that your time is like that your productivity approach and business is like that how you spend your money is it's like that in every area but for some reason in missions we think more is more is more is more and yeah. so those kind of conversations at the level of the low the average congregant did present us with some anxiety and we needed some help to get strategy around how to shepherd faithfully to bring the congregation along to where we were. So there was kind of pain relationally, financially, in terms of time and other and other ways, but those are some things that come to my mind. Yeah, it, some actually counterintuitive thinking, like you say, well, more is more, that's gotta be better, but that's not necessarily true. You can really miss a mark. Uh, Mark, how about you? What what sort of pain and and struggles were you seeing from your vantage point? You know, I think Trent articulated this extremely well. One area I might add is that it did require rethinking how we budgeted. I mean, Trent mentioned this idea of the 50%. That had caused us a lot of trouble for really a number of years um, because we... we you know, if we weren't making budget on the 150% side, we had to find creative ways to be missionally using the other 50%. And that, when I first joined the church, that was really kind of weird, actually. Anyway, um, we worked through that. I think most of that happened actually before Trent's tenure, but we had worked through that. That was very helpful. Um, and and it, that required us to explain to the congregation, we're not diminishing missions and we actually don't want to give less to missions we just want to be really forthright about what is missions and what isn't and what this money should be going to and then once the process was coming together under uh, Matthew's coaching I think very very wisely and I don't remember how much of this maybe came from Trent and other church leaders or how much was coming from Matthew but I do remember this went out in sort of concentric circles so it, as I said, we kind of started with this group of five or six people. We'd get together every month or several times a month to talk missions in the church. And that then grew uh, much larger with Matthew's coaching to involve um, the, the majority of church leadership, the elders and, and some others, and uh, certainly the pastoral staff. And then from there, it went out to uh, the, the elders and deacons together. And then from there out to the, our small group, our shepherding groups, uh, those leaders. And so 
we didn't try to spring it on the whole congregation all at once. It, it moved forward in stages, which I think that was one of the best things I learned from this whole process. Yeah, that's great. So, brothers, I know that not long after you rolled out this retooled vision, COVID hits. And so I realized that this may not have moved at the pace you were hoping for. And we know God's sovereign and he's orchestrating all these things for his glory. But I know you have experienced some traction. There's been some benefits and blessings already from this clarifying process. Maybe you could speak about a few of those benefits and blessings for our audience. We had a wonderful kickoff in which we introduced um, this, uh, the ideas and the, and the goals to our congregation. We introduced the revised uh, mission statement and our, our key components and um, had, had just a tremendous buy-in, uh, a lot of enthusiasm. And um, we, we did, I suppose, lose some momentum of that because of the timing of COVID. But uh, I think the impact has still been very strong and we, we feel like we're still moving forward, although you know, a bit slower at this point because of circumstances. Yeah, and from my perspective, there is a palpable settling that has happened in different conversations and rooms. There's always a lot of energy at Heritage. Heritage has, had, uh, has done some really incredible things in terms of giving and generosity and sending our sons and daughters. And there are some, we've mentioned some other kinds of works, but there have been some really, really focused and beautiful works that we've been a part of and remain to be a, continue to be a part of. But there, so there's always been a lot of energy and uh, uh, gusto, but there was over time with a lack of clarity and, and sort of multiplying commitments, there was also a lot of anxiety. Depending yeah. on what room you were in or team you were in, there's this sense that we had things right in the past and, and are they going to be right in the future? And this missionary asked me this question, but what's the answer? Oh, we've got to get team together and we've got to do this. We don't have a plan for that. And we, we knew we were between things, uh, but we didn't know what exactly we were between and we weren't all agreed. So anxiety is the word I'd use to describe it. And, and since having settled on our aim and values in a basic direction, there's a sense in which the congregation and leadership is now settled on a direction. And I hear only positive vibes. I get no negative vibes concerning the mission and its work. If we had someone knock on the door from our congregation or somebody that we love that was on staff years ago and now they're going to go to the mission field, we wouldn't be conflicted about what to do about that. There wouldn't be tension around how to treat them or approach it. We'd have a process and aims and we would have agreed on that. So from a pastoral side, I would use the words peace and a sense of settled commitment together. Mm. It's like we're now we're out at sea and we know what the tools are we're going to use to guide ourselves. Our future is not exactly clear as to where we will land, but we're all on board and we're moving in the same direction. And we feel that together. We can thank God for it. That is so powerful, Trent. Uh, the, the power of the brotherhood when it's unified. I, I think of you know Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. And then, of course, the, the metaphor there is oil flowing down Aaron's beard or dew on Mount Hermon. So you, just your mention of peace, you know, you have a common theology that, you know, you guys have wrestled through together that came right out of Bible. You have shared values and a clarified direction. And 
Um, there the Lord commands a blessing. I, I can't wait to hear stories in the you know months and years to come about mm -hmm. the progress of the gospel through your church, brothers. Amen. Yeah, um, it's so good to hear about your process of what Matthew and I often term reformation. And uh, when people hear that, they kind of recoil sometimes. And what we simply mean by that is we mean a rediscovery of missions, not a rethinking or a reimagining, which is so often what everybody wants to do. Um, there can be creativity in the process, but it's really about rediscovering what Jesus wants us to do as local churches. And obviously your process wasn't an easy one. It took significant time and resources, but let's talk a minute to the church and missions leader who might be thinking, well, I get it. This is important, but I don't think we can afford the time and energy required to go through this type of process. Um, what are the risks of continuing in a pervasive kind of mission status quo that calls all Christians missionaries and considers all good works altruistic or evangelist works missions endeavors what what might you say to them and what might you speak uh prophetically and encouraging to them part of our concern from the very beginning was that we had more mission partners than we could legitimately minister to or be ministered uh, from. And so our message to the congregation was actually, though this will be a hardship for some of those mission partners we choose to no longer financially support, we will build such dynamic relationships moving forward with the smaller group that is part of our commitment that it will give you much more opportunity to engage with them. It will give you opportunity to know them. It will give you opportunity to interact with them. When they come back on uh, their, their home assignment, because we want to give them a greater percentage of their financial support, we'll have a greater investment in them, which we trust will mean they'll be able to spend a greater amount of time with us. Yeah. And in turn, um, they can serve us. They can teach us things that they've learned in their missionary experience that we're, we're not gonna learn um, just from our experience here in Greenville, South Carolina. And so it's a mutually beneficial experience. We, we help them by being deeply engaged with them in every way possible, serving them and truly caring for them. They help us by giving us much more um, opportunity to really be involved. And that, that leads us you know, to that whole idea of whole church engagement, which is one of our, our, our principal points. And um, you know, people who otherwise might say, I really want to do something to further the kingdom of Christ on the mission field, but you know, I just have this skill. Well, if we think through this creatively and we're really deeply engaged, people with all kinds of skills can find ways to use those to advance the work of Christ. But but when we don't really know, because we're trying to just juggle the balls of having 40 different mission partners, and we're just doing our best to keep in touch with them on any level, that's not really happening. Yeah. Well, Trent, uh, speak to maybe pastors who are, are thinking, boy, I don't know if we can afford to go through this sort of thing. 
Yeah, glad to. You know, every church needs to make its own decision on what it can do, and there are lots of factors, and any given pastor on the ground will know what's realistic and, and what might make sense in five years and what needs attention right now. But it, let's say I was speaking to my former self at this church with that same objection. Maybe I'd have two things to say, and the first would be, practically, uh, Trent, you can't afford not to, given how much budget goes to this. We have an incredible amount of money going to dollars, little, little dollar soldiers, if you will, going out to fulfill the mission. Whether you're building a house or you're going on vacation, there's anything that involves time and resources and people will get um, the, the, the attention it needs up front to make sure that it is spent right. And uh, so at some point, a church needs to do that work. Maybe it's done it when they were founded. Maybe it needs to do it when they're 45 years in. Maybe they need to do it again. But it's a wholly appropriate, given how much is being given, that we stop and take inventory and make sure we're all on the same page and we're spending it right. We know exactly what we're doing. Uh, and then missiologically, we can't afford not to do it, given how central this matter is to the mission of the church. Yeah. I was in this morning doing some sermon prep and and on the back of my mind thinking, what will I say that's new in, in this podcast? And, and and I find Jesus in Mark 7, you know, he goes to Tyre and Sidon in verse 24, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And you get this theme in Mark of Jesus saying, don't tell people I'm here and and keep quiet over. He's clearly constrained by his mission. He, he hasn't come to be a medical missionary. Jesus is constrained by his mission to get to and through the cross. And if Jesus is constrained in his mission with limited time and resources that he had as a human, then we are also constrained by our particular mission in God's plan, and that is to get the gospel to the edges of the earth. And we aren't every church responsible to get to every unreached place. But we are one church that can do some awesome gospel damage if we slow down, focus, get on the same page, and then line up all of our resources and people behind a particular concrete project or initiative somewhere at the edge of the earth. And I'm excited that we'll get about it. So those would be the two things I'd say to myself if I was stuck around the question of whether um, this kind of an alignment process is worth it. I love what you said there, Trent. You can't afford not to do this. And, you know, of course, like you said, every church is unique. It's got a unique history and challenges. But I would just echo that if you do not have as a local body, as a group of leaders in the church, a clarified biblical understanding of mission and a, a strategy, a spirit birth strategy to fulfill it, well, then you're just going to be very haphazard and uh, disappointed with the impact. So. I would just echo, take the time to sit at God's feet. One of the things that we've been using a lot lately in our communication about our coaching process is that it's an Acts 13 season. You know, you have this beautiful picture of the church in Antioch, which we already referred to, of leaders championing the vision. But I believe that, you know, the Spirit spoke in this one specific meeting, as it says, um, you know, as the leaders were gathered together, the Holy Spirit said, and of course, the mission was to engage the Gentiles, the nations. But I have this feeling that they were in an Acts 13 season of prayer and fasting and worship, seeking God. And out of that prayerful process came this mission, which was as old as history, you know, from the beginning, um, God's plan to reach the Gentiles. In fact, the, they quote the Old Testament there as they begin to unfold this mission. So 
I, I just want to affirm that. Denny, any last comments from you, brother? Well, I was so encouraged to hear from both of you today and to be reminded that process can really bring you to a place of re-energizing and of excitement and of uh, helping your church keep the main thing, the main thing. And, you know, I think you said it well uh, here, Trent. We have to revisit who the Lord is and what Jesus is asking of us and then dive in and uh, figure out where we need to take our next steps based upon his commands. Uh, so thank you both, both of you today for sharing your hearts and making your church um, an example that people can hear about and learn from. Very welcome. You know, we're, we're honored to be a part of this as we are a part of the work. Yeah. Thanks, brothers and uh, listeners. You'll want to pick up the book and read the chapters of these two brothers, Mark Vowles and Trent Hunter. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Denny. Before you go, visit our website to learn more about When Everything is Missions and order your copy today. It is www.whenEverythingIsMissions.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss one. The When Everything is Missions podcast is presented by 1615.